Welcome to Marginally Fanish, a show where we aim an intersectional lens at some of our favorite media and their fandoms. My name is Padnita Shetty and you're listening to the 15th episode of Marginally Fanish. In this episode, I talk to Zeev Vitis about the representation of religion in speculative fiction. We also discuss Jewish faith traditions how they are similar to fandom culture and how they diverge in the beginning of the episode we talk about Orson Scott Card's ideas about humanism and religion but don't explicitly mention or criticize his homophobic views so i'm taking this opportunity to clarify that we abhor his bigotry it's rare to find religious representation in mainstream fiction if religious people do exist in science fiction and fantasy their portrayals are quite extreme and they're often featured as antagonists. Religion is largely used as an excuse for people to do terrible things without any other context or explanation. While religious zealots do exist, by always linking religion to violence and irrationality, mainstream media perpetuates a limited idea of religion. For many people, religion is the lens through which they make sense of the world and engage with ideas of morality. Science fiction and fantasy explore several themes that religion is also interested in. An increasing number of people use popular culture to engage with moral issues and navigate the world they inhabit. Religious fans read themselves into non-religious media to address their underrepresentation and misrepresentation in fictional worlds. These interpretations offer a way to learn about religion as well. There are some instances where faith is represented in nuanced and complex ways which explore multiple perspectives of religious canon. But we need more stories which grapple with how ideas of religion, pluralism and humanism fit together and how people of different faiths can coexist. Find our conversation about all this and more in today's episode. Happy listening. Today, I'm so happy to welcome Zeev Vitiz on the podcast. Zeev is Orthodox Jewish and lives in Israel. At various times, he's lived on Kibbutz in Jerusalem, on Mount Gilboa, and mostly in the country center orbiting Tel Aviv. Besides programming and fending off his three loving children, Zeev is assistant editor at Diabolical Plots and associate editor at Podcastle. You can find him on Twitter at QuiteWay, or on his website, zeevitties.com. All the links will be in the transcript. In this episode, we're exploring representations of faith in speculative fiction. And as I've mentioned many times on this podcast, I'm not really a religious person, which is why when I'm reading or watching fantasy and science fiction, I don't usually actively think about religion and whether or not it is present in the world or the way in which it is present which is why I'm so glad to be able to chat with someone who is religious and who does think about these issues. Even going through the really thoughtful text that Zeev recommended has expanded my mind in so many ways. So before we begin, Zeev, do you want to talk about your own engagement with this topic? (laughs) It's an interesting question because I feel like there's not been a lot of it. I, I always feel that I'm looking for it and it's so rare to actually find religious representation in mainstream fiction. There are a few like notable exceptions, a few places that, you know, lit up and I said, oh my goodness, that, you know, that's kind of what I've been looking for. Uh, more recently, there's been things like Ada Palmer's Terra Ignota series, which addresses it 
in really interesting ways. It kind of talks around it, not going into any specific faith, but rather about the need and the role of faith in community. One story that stuck out for me in uh, in one of the Hyperion books, there's one, it's a, it's a book that's kind of built of multiple uh, shorter stories, and one of them is about a scholar who uh, is writing about the uh, sacrifice of Isaac, about the, about when Abraham is uh, ordered to sacrifice Isaac to God. And the whole story is framed as him debating the morality and trying to understand what, you know, what we're even supposed to learn from that story. And I love that because it connected to me so deeply to how we think about it. Uh, one of the things, and probably the author I've seen talk about this most and most explicitly is Orson Scott Card, who mm. has addressed it in great detail and also is a huge can of worms. So, yeah. <laughs> so I feel like he has very unusual insight as a very popular at the time when I was reading him in the 90s, uh, a, a very popular and influential author who definitely had this in his fiction in 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 different ways um and everything that comes with that yeah so i didn't actually know enough about orson scott card uh, mm. before you you know we read uh, mm-hmm. the introduction to cruel miracles and his beliefs or even his mm-hmm. writing until i came across some memes recently in response mm-hmm. to jk rowling, JK rowling yes yeah <laughs> so like from fans of him and lovecraft welcoming rolling fans into their fold so, like yep 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 <laughs> <laughs> but Absolutely. I like I really enjoyed his uh, essay, which we, I'm going to link to as well, because like the way that he approached it and his arguments made sense, which is, you know, that the lack of characters who are religious in not only science fiction and fantasy, but also literary fiction is a bit weird considering how important a framework religion is to many people not just Mm -hmm. in the u.s and india and like israel but like all over the world right a lot of people use religion to make sense of the world and it's a very it plays a really important part in their lives and if everyone was so hostile to religion as these texts that we love seem to you know lead us to believe then obviously religion wouldn't survive like you know if everyone was above religion mm-hmm. as like most of science fiction seems to think there really wouldn't be a role for it and uh, what I really liked in the blog post what does God need with a space station mm-hmm. like she spoke about how religion is about people sure it's about God as well but it's mostly about interactions with each other and with your idea of religion and your idea of God and how that impacts your own life, which, yeah, I thought that was a really nice idea of religion because like like I've said, since I'm not a religious person but come from a deeply religious country, like in India, religion yeah. is mm-hmm. a huge part of, like different yeah. religions, not just Hinduism, mm-hmm. but, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I am even more so now than ever before keenly aware of how much religion can be weaponized and yes. is weaponized and used Absolutely. to exclude groups of people, right? I'm sure you're, like, yeah, you're well aware of that as well. Absolutely. But I really also I'm interested in the humanistic idea of religion, which Orson Scott Card's uh, the introduction delved into a little bit. Like he was talking about religious themes and ideas rather than this one true religion, even though he's Mormon or was Mormon. I don't yeah. know. He is. Yes, yes. 
Yeah. Very, very much so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think the the comparison to Rowling and to uh, Lovecraft are are apt in a certain way, but I feel like for the people who were you know strong card fans, it was so much a shock or a, or, a, or a gradual awakening. I understand that there are people who who saw him as problematic much much earlier, but to a lot of readers, Card was the great humanist. Uh, you know, if you look at works like Ender's Game and, and the sequels, which are, you know, which have such a theme of learning to recognize wider and wider bands of, of beings as being uh, as being people. And I think that his saying of, hey, religious people are in that category, too. They are also a category of people that should be recognized and empathized with and seen as yet another way to look at the world and another place that people come from. Certainly as, you know, as a reader of his fiction, it spoke to me very strongly. And <laughs> and if we look beyond that, you can certainly see uh, his, you know, his later activity and opinions as feeling very contrary to that. I mean, that's that, similar to J.K. Rowling, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, I've grown up with her books mm-hmm. and a lot of, like, a lot of fans now. And they're like, but your books taught me to be inclusive and open-minded <laughs> and kind and compassionate to everybody. And now you're not like, you know, it's like, okay, yeah. I, we thought your books were talking about one thing, but apparently it only <laughs> existed for a certain group of people. Well, we're rejecting that. We're, we're still going to keep the message yeah. and maybe like divorce you from your text. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And also like the question of author's intent versus fan interpretations right like fans might have not taken what the author meant for them to take so mm-hmm. now people yeah. are going back to the text and they're like no there's lots of like not only now this has been happening yeah. because I'm listening to gradually because it's been so popular yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And especially like when like I started reading Harry Potter when I was 10. So, mm-hmm. you know, at, when you grow up with something, and it was hugely important to me for many reasons. And you're not really, you don't have the ability or the vocabulary or even the thought processes to identify these things. Oh. Whereas someone mm-hmm. who's, and now I'm rereading it as an adult and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I still love it. But Always I'm dangerous. To, yeah, yeah. But I'm able to criticize it because I love it. And, you know, yeah. like all the problematic elements, including like transphobic jokes where like mm-hmm. men in dresses are often the butt of jokes mm-hmm. in the series. Yes. Which, uh, without knowing her views now, I would never have thought too much about it. But now mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, oh <laughs> OK. Um, and then, of course, going on to the other end where if religious people do exist in speculative fiction, many times the portrayals are quite extreme. So, you know, you mentioned this trope that religious people are seen as adversaries to the protagonist. And were you specifically thinking of Station Eleven? It's one of the more recent books that I've read where this was a strong element. It's a trope that you see over and over where like there's some science fictional concept in the world. There are aliens, but there's a religious sect that think the aliens are evil. There are robots, but people think that robots are soulless and a travesty. Uh, there is cloning, but people but but there is a religious sect that thinks that this thing is a bad thing. And when you define religion in that way, it comes out as incredibly shallow because what you've basically created, what you've basically said is there are religious nuts who will believe anything. And I am going to create one whose set of beliefs is very specifically what I need for the story. And it's kind of it's kind of a statement 
that rational people would not object to this thing. The reader who is rational will be on my side. He will recognize nuance. He will, the, the reader will understand that this is an important thing or an interesting thing or something that has a lot of potential. But those religious zealots, they are going to just reject it out of hand and with no thought. And they'll do it because somebody has told them that it is a religious principle and that's all there is to it. Like religious people or some religious people are a kind of blank slate that you can just give a random order to and they'll go, yep, I'm, I'm going to believe that with yeah. no context, <laughs> with yeah. no, nothing else. <laughs> no, uh, and I find it really interesting as well because, you know, until you mentioned, like you said, that you wanted to talk about Station Eleven a mm-hmm. bit and I yeah. mm-hmm. read this book a few years ago, so I didn't really remember... Like, I have a terrible memory, so every time I read a, yep. read a book that's not Harry Potter, it's like, oh, I don't, I have no idea what's happened. So I went back to the book and I read it and I, like, the prophet character who is the one that is this sort of religious zealot and, like, a cult leader almost. And, you know, the first time I read it, and even when I was rereading it, keeping your comments in mm-hmm. mind, like, the brief comments that you made in our emails, mm-hmm. I was like... Oh, yeah, but, you know, people like this do exist. There are, uh, like in India, you see this with mm-hmm. godmen and godwomen who are like this, especially now when we have this Hindu fascist government, mm-hmm. like a Hindu supremacist government in power, you do see more of that more explicitly. But then, like, when I was thinking about that more, I was like, but if that's your only representation of religion, not just in the books, exactly. but like... In mainstream media at large, like, of course, these people exist. But then how is that different from, you know, tropes about different races or disabilities or just anything, you know, like religions as well, that if you say all people belonging to a certain religion or just religion at large are these extremist fundamentalist zealots, then that's also doing a great disservice to religious people and religious fans who aren't like that. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I brought Station Eleven as an example is, you know, it, it's a good book. It's a compelling book. It's a it, it's a book with a lot of appeal. But if you look at how the prophet is is constructed, it's a character who's presented as being intensely unlikable. This is not like a charismatic person, and yet somehow he he has converted town upon town, community on community, to do like exactly what he says. Even when he's not around, by no mechanism, all the mechanisms of religion are mechanisms of community, of having, you know, a community that acts in certain ways and in certain interests. But you get the impression of the prophet as somebody who is like kind of the spoiled kid, but he comes to a place, he says, I'm a prophet and you should behave in these horrible ways and punish everybody who disagrees. And apparently, like everybody just goes along with that for no apparent reason. You know, with well, no... one of the reasons in that is mm-hmm. violence, right? Like, they have a lot of access to guns, I believe. Like, they, that's how they've seemed to so have cowed down a lot of towns. Definite, that's definitely, like, brought in. But first of all, that's not a religion. That's, you know, mm. that's just... <laughs> yeah. That's just violence. Yeah. <laughs> And, 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 you know, in order to get those and in order to get the people who are with him, like, you know, if he if he was the leader of a gang of thugs who found the first weapon cache and just built on that, you know, I, I wouldn't that would make sense. But putting it in the trappings of religion, it just doesn't follow any of the natural 
uh, progression that a that a faith or a community does. It's just yeah. using the clothing of religion in order to say we don't actually need to justify why these people are being so horrible. Rather, religion is something that gives people permission to be horrible, and that's the only explanation you need. I mean, uh, I definitely saw the prophet and his followers, or whatever his like mm-hmm. the people who are too scared to not follow mm-hmm. him as more of a cult than a religion and like of course there's like re- like a lot of cults are based in both traditional as well as non-traditional religions you know like in india in the us mm-hmm. in different yeah. parts mm-hmm. so in harry potter and the sacred text uh, one of the episodes they were talking mm-hmm. about they looked at house elves as a cult mm-hmm. and a religion yeah. uh-huh. like basically they were like oh how the house elf community could be a religion but dobby by leaving it showed that it's not a cult because he was able to leave it which you know that's how they differentiated between a religion and mm-hmm. a cult like a religion you wouldn't mm-hmm. be killed or you wouldn't be ostracized yeah. or you wouldn't be like i mean you might depending on which mm-hmm. part of the world you're in but you would like you know you're able to leave a religion and like either not be religious mm-hmm. anymore or find mm-hmm. a different religion whereas a cult if you leave you're you know like in like in station 11 you know, grave stuck for you yeah yeah and, and i and i think that's exactly it the the blurring of the line the equation between a religion and a cult is exactly what a lot of these stories do mm-hmm. because it's definitely you know it's definitely common to see like a religion in this sense where some of the where, where some of the adherents are not actually faithful but they're just too yeah. too afraid but the way that a cult works like cults have specific dynamics of how they target people who are vulnerable about how they isolate them and keep them away from being able to possibly leave cults almost by definition are pretty small because in order to scale up <laughs> to, yeah. to the degree that they can isolate each and every one of their members and keep you know keep people from being able to leave that's just not possible at large scale that's exactly what i feel is so harmful is saying that religions and cults are, are basically the same thing each one of them has their problems, but they're very different ones. Yeah. And like in there seems to be like, you know, in these instances where religion is portrayed negatively, there seems to be a perceived conflict between humanism and religion. Like you're saying, the mm-hmm. religion is very much framed in a cult like manner where there's not really any engagement with religious themes and ideas that a lot of people would consider as religious themes and ideas like i know like Mm -hmm. a group of people would be more fundamentalist in their beliefs but again like that's the problem right that if Mm -hmm. your mainstream media and culture only shows that Mm -hmm. aspect of religion and like Mm -hmm. the violence that's done with it then that's a problem as well because then you're painting everyone with the same brush and like you you have this toxic idea of religion yeah i think it's vanishingly rare for any of these you know religious portrayals or portrayals of 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 cults or spirituality as being something that you can have any sympathy with being attracted to (laughs) like they're never portrayed in a way that you can say well i can see why some people go with this yeah yeah it's like a very irrational sort of thing which you know like there's already this idea that religion is irrational and like when I was younger Mm -hmm. and I was growing up in this my mom is super religious Mm -hmm. but like this like I was telling you the kind of religion who uh, religious who believes in different kinds of religions so it's Uh not so much 
think that oh this religion is the correct religion but because she's had different influences she went to a catholic school grew up in a you know hindu household and like culturally india is very hindu and also like goes to mosques and things like basically any any sort of religious you know thing mm-hmm. that would have her she'll go and she'll find solace in that mm-hmm. but for me as a teenager that i really chafed at that because mm-hmm. for me it didn't make sense to me and mm-hmm. she didn't she wasn't learned in and neither am i in like mm-hmm. theology or religion from a scholarly point of view so you know all these questions that i had like why must we do this and why and like a lot of hinduism and or at least a lot of people who culturally follow hinduism there are a lot of patriarchal ideas yeah. there mm-hmm. so you know things like for women for example this is the thing i remember that i first started fighting about like when women are on their period you can't go into a temple because you're considered uh-huh. unclean mm-hmm. and this was something that didn't make sense to me and i was all about no if you have a correct answer i'll like you know i'll give you the be- like benefit of doubt mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. she obviously <laughs> didn't have an answer because she wasn't like she didn't know enough about it even to be able to give me she's her answer was like no this is the way that it is and i was like nope nope not <laughs> not enough not enough yeah no that's mm-hmm. not happening with me so which is why i started questioning religion and i think earlier like i was much more anti religion than i am now and i think it was because of that that you know i grew up having religion what i felt imposed on me so i yeah. chafed with that and yeah. i think that the danger is that atheism can also become a kind of fundamentalism which a lot of atheists do have that toxic side where it's either the way that we think is correct or everything like oh you know you're wrong you're stupid you're irrational you're not someone worth talking to which i don't think i was quite that far gone but uh-huh. i was heading in that direction i think until like you know i found more of these ideas that mm-hmm. wait no not all religious people are like this not all <laughs> religious people are irrational in heavy quotes it's just like you said a way of making sense of the world you're using religion as a way to engage with the world to engage with people to engage with these ideas of morals and you know just what it means to be a good person Mm-hmm. A lot of that is definitely there. I feel like the kind of diehard atheism, angry atheism, is not too much part of the landscape just it, in in fiction, just because those are pretty uninteresting stories of like religious people are stupid. Like yeah, you definitely see it, or it slips in sometimes. I keep going back to I keep going back to the lyrics to uh, Imagine, where he wishes for no religion too. I'm like, yeah. well, that like that. <laughs> I don't appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm with you with all the peace and harmony and stuff, but why can't religion be a part of that? And I think it's it's a fascinating tension, but that that's one of the lines that just stands out to me as just like, wait a second, if that's your de- you know if your definition of peace and harmony specifically excludes me, then yeah. I'm not sure about it, am I? Yeah. Um. And in similar ways, I think it's just, to some extent, I think part of it is that it's not on people's radar. It's the pe- people who are not devout, who are not faithful, uh, who don't have a particular spiritual fr- practice, don't have a sense of how that affects a person's life or how yeah. that's a sympathetic point of view. And so they don't put it in because they're not aware of it, which is similar yeah. to a lot of other you know, blind spots that people mm-hmm. have. And another part of it is, uh, you know, particularly in fiction, I think religion is a particularly challenging thing 
to put in because it kind of requests or requires that people buy into a whole additional worldview, but also keep it at arm's length, you know, be able to differentiate between phys- the physical reality or, that is being described and the spiritual side that is being uh, yeah. attested to. And if you're going to do all that and it's not going to be like a huge issue in the story, then a lot of stories leave it out. I think it, in a similar way to the way a lot of, a lot of, uh, marginalized communities and identities get left out because people are like, well, I could make the character gay, but if it's not important to the story, that'll be putting a lot of effort and it won't like pay off in any way. And in a similar feel in in a similar way, putting in religion is as difficult or more difficult because it's literally a different perception of reality or a different way of living and just explaining all that. Yes, I think the tension is that religion isn't, like, because it forms the sort of social cultural framework of so many countries, I feel like it's not seen as marginalized in the same way that, you know, say being gay or being disabled in, like, fiction. Absolutely. Oh, it's so different. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, that's, you know, this is something I hadn't really thought of until we start, like, you know, I was preparing for this episode and a few of the texts that you would suggested as well as a few of the other texts that, you know, we Mm -hmm. uh, looked at. And I was like, but, you know, then that's also so problematic. Religion is so invisible or so irrelevant (laughs) in your world. Then then that does end up marginalizing religious people all over the world. Yeah, I, I, I think I want to be very careful here because... There are ways in which the comparison or even the use of the same terminology is very wrong. Like in Israel, you cannot say that Judaism is marginalized or that mm. Orthodox Judaism is marginalized. It's absolutely the opposite, though. Yeah. Religious people have tremendous power. Ultra-Orthodox have tremendous power. The rabbinate has tremendous power, including who can get married or who can get divorced. It's not a marginalization in, mm. in most terms that we're used to speaking about. It. Yeah. But yeah. in terms of visibility and portrayal or how much it's uh, assumed to be within consensus or within the default in mainstream media, it's very, very different. And so, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's I a mean, strange place to be. Same. What I really liked, that's why in the book, To Like the Lightning by Ada Palmer, mm-hmm. I'm saying the book, like I've read four chapters, extracts of it. But you had suggested, uh, you know, reading a bit of the book and I just couldn't stop reading so you can read the <laughs> extracts for free on tor.com which I link to again in the transcript I was so utterly and immediately bewitched by it not just because of the world building and you know the characters and everything but because of the way in which religion seems to play such an important role but also not really like it's <laughs> it's uh, where you know the in this novel it proposes that religion should be deeply personal and individual and nobody else should know about your religious beliefs so that's the premise of this futuristic world that you know that's there and, and i found that i found that fascinating it, it immediately captivated to me because it speaks so directly to to the tension that we're talking about to the tension mm-hmm. between between faith and the way that faith is kind of like if you if you say, well, I believe in this thing, it's very difficult to, to say, no, no, you don't. But at the same time, what right does that give you to exert power over other people? Mm-hmm. So this attempt to say, well, OK, you can have faith, but it needs to be entirely personal is fantastic in the be- you know in the best 
way of exploring an interesting idea. And, it, and it the sensor as well. Yeah. The sensor is this concept of a personal spiritual advisor who never expresses his own opinion, but guides an individual through his own spiritual thoughts and points him to various religious beliefs that have been adopted or discussed in the world and throughout history. So he helps everybody craft their very own personal individual religion, which they can't tell anybody else about. Mm -hmm. And I found it absolutely delightful. You know, some of it is so attractive, the idea of having faith without impinging against anybody else. And in some other ways, it just makes no sense because, mm. <laughs> because how, you know, if that, if that particular approach doesn't actually work with your beliefs, then can you limit yourself to it? Uh, if, you re- if you read the entire book, it addresses similar th- themes on, on a lot of different topics. But it reminds me a lot. I mean, during the, the Enlightenment period, I think it was, there was a common saying uh, in, in Judaism that you should be a Jew in your home and a man outside your home mm-hmm. uh, to, to keep your religious being, to keep your religious persona entirely distinct from who you are to the outside world. And there are things that that I think resonate very strongly with that and things that are also kind of horrifying about that, about the idea that you can believe something very strongly and that it be such an influential thing on your life, but also you can't make that known in any way or people will think badly of you. I'm with you there totally. Like, I think, like you said, the idea is super interesting and like I've ordered the book. So I, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to read it Mm -hmm. and I'll find (laughs) out what happens because the book is, amazing like yeah I just caught me off guard but at the same time this idea that nobody else should know about your religious beliefs is quite problematic as well because it prevents you from finding community which is for me the most appealing thing like I'm Mm non-religious but for me this idea of finding community and you know meeting together to talk to people who may not be from the same social cultural even political backgrounds but you're all still coming together to you know I don't know, have a meal or mm-hmm. I just like do something like in a church or in a temple or whatever. Like in Harry Potter in the sacred text, that's something mm. that they explore a lot where they have people from different religious and faith backgrounds come and talk to them through the Harry Potter framework. But they emphasize the community aspect as well so much where, you know, it is a way for them to provide this community the podcast itself to people both from religious and non-religious backgrounds whereas in two like the lightning it has this vaguely uncomfortable idea of how marginalized people are meant to assimilate to the dominant culture and leave behind their beliefs and practices behind in an effort to fit in which you know in most countries of course there's a dominant religion like in india hinduism Mm -hmm. is the dominant religion so like a bit of what you're saying about Jewish people in like during the enlightenment period would be now for Muslims or Christians in India and it's much more difficult because the names like you know in Mumbai where I am from there's this huge horrible thing that people with Muslim names find it much harder to rent flats like to rent apartments because housing societies don't want Muslim people in their like imagine that (laughs) level of social and structural persecution so yeah this Sort of, yeah, this, oh, yeah, you don't need to talk about your religion, you know, at (laughs) all is a bit problematic. 
And honestly, um, I think that's often where religious stories shine most is where when you're a persecuted religion, when you're a minority. And I think that's often when religion shines most as well. It's kind of a way to unite a group that is persecuted. And it's, it's very, very different than when you're a dominant religion and being religious means that you get to dictate religious rules. Yeah. And like with like I was telling you with Judaism, it's mm-hmm. something that I'm very new to just like not Judaism yeah. itself, but just yes. Jewishness. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like in India, we don't we're not really taught so much like our understanding of Jewishness is very tied to World War Two. Uh-huh. And you know what happened there. But this book that I was reading called Anti-Judaism, it mm-hmm. explores the history of Jewish persecution, which went much beyond that. Like it went yeah. right to 2000 years ago, which I was completely unaware of. And yep. I currently live in the UK, which there it's a lot of anti-Semitism is a part of the mainstream conversation. But for me, I don't recognize a lot of yeah. what would be anti-Semitic because I don't mm-hmm. know what the tropes and stereotypes are. You know, that, like mm-hmm. someone in the West may take for granted. And of course, like in Israel, like you said, being Jewish is the dominant religion. But like in other yeah. parts of the world, it's the same with like with Hinduism, right? Like in yeah. India, I'm a part of the dom, even though I'm not religious because of my mm-hmm. name and my background. Right. I'm a part yes. of the dominant culture. But in the UK, I'm suddenly others. <laughs> yep. So I really, that's why I really think like I like this idea that uh, there's this huge potential of exploring religious themes and questions in science fiction and fantasy, even without perhaps explicitly calling it religious themes. You know, like yeah. it's something that mm-hmm. Austin Scott Card said in his introduction, and it's something that the Faith and Fantasy episode of Imaginary mm-hmm. Worlds they explored as well, where it was a panel of different faith leaders who were Mm -hmm. discussing the role of religion in science fiction and fantasy. And Mm -hmm. Eric, the host, said that science fiction and fantasy asks a lot of the same questions that religion asks, which I love that idea. And it's something that I hadn't considered before listening to this podcast a few weeks ago. Absolutely. I think it's, it's fascinating in that way. And I honestly think that fiction nowadays gives a similar outlet or place of discussion, a different forum to talk about the same questions a lot of the things that they raise are is there a purpose to being is there a plan are our actions preordained in any way what is free will are all questions to a large degree of faith and you don't necessarily have to believe to find them meaningful you don't have to believe in order to ask yourself are things going to work out because that's the way the universe works or are we all a cosmic accident that might be eaten by a black hole tomorrow and that you know and nobody would would know and how do i want to act because even even if i do believe that you know we could all be wiped out by an asteroid tomorrow i don't necessarily want to behave as though that is true even if i technically believe it is because i don't think that that's right um i don't think many people do you know behave as though none of our actions matter or as though you can be immoral in private as long as nobody finds out. I don't think, you know, I don't think that's true of anybody. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it's true of some people, but I don't think that's how morality works regardless of faith. I don't think that's how people grasp it or or, or behave. Yeah, because uh, absolutely, I completely agree. Because for me, morality has never been tied to religion for example mm-hmm. you know like just because I don't remember being religious, I, like I went to a catholic school and like I said mm-hmm. a hindu household so I have 
those rituals and traditions that I have a connection to or like I have experience with, but never that idea that what like in Hinduism there is you know there is the idea of karma where yeah. if you do good things now mm-hmm. your next birth that's what yes. will you know like in reincarnation so mm-hmm. what you if you're this evils that you're suffering now is a result of your past life and again like I said rebellious teenager this never made sense to me so I was like <laughs> but why would I you know do good things just for a future self why wouldn't I do good things because I like people mm-hmm. and like I want to you know be like I think kindness yeah. is more important mm-hmm. than yeah like I don't want to be born as a cockroach or whatever sorry <laughs> I, I don't really know so much about Hindu like I don't know Hinduism mm-hmm. in a scholarly way either so mm-hmm. yeah sorry about Hindu people listening to this podcast <laughs> but like I love stories you know both fictional and real like that's the framework that I use to make sense of the world I know there's a lot of literature about how fiction does lead to empathy like among readers which I don't know how how true that is empirically but I found that for me because I've been reading since I was like five or something and haven't stopped so I love this idea of fans treating non-religious popular culture texts as sacred in much the same way as religious people treat religious texts as sacred and you know which Harry Potter like we're doing a little bit of that in this podcast but Harry Potter and the Sacred Text does it so much more explicitly. (laughs) Yes, very much so. I think it's an interesting, it's a really interesting observation. Because first of all, I agree agree entirely. I think just literally the question of what is good, what is behaving well, what is virtue is easy to, to, you know, to say is a religious question. It doesn't act, it's not a a religious question, but it's a question that religion talks a lot about. (laughs) And if you don't get into spirituality or metaphysics, if you stick with, you know, strictly what is observable or what is utilitarian, it's just harder to discuss. Mm-hmm. You can feel personally that you're a better person for behaving well, even if it has no consequence, without needing to justify that. And that is, it's not a matter of faith necessarily, but it is a matter of belief in a way. I'm connecting with what you're saying about how the way that people kind of analyze stories now, fiction, in order to figure out to a better extent if a character is good, in what way are they good? If somebody was good and then a bad thing happened, is that yeah. you know, is that how things work? You know, the way that the way that people use fiction now in order to talk about morality is really interesting. And I think it's very, very similar to what is done in religion where you know where stories and the interpretation of those stories are a lot of the basis for understanding what is good behavior you gave some interesting examples where people really compared for example the construction of midrash which in in judaism Mm -hmm. are these fairly far out uh interpretations of uh of biblical text that seem very disconnected from the original text or, or what it simply means. And they add in all kinds of fantastical things and, and elements that seem very far removed from the original text. But they often come in response to something, you know, to some question. In Hebrew, you call it a, a kushia, a, a difficulty with the original text that they feel that they have to explain. Like, for example, yeah. if you look at the biblical text, there's very little about Esau actually being in any way offensive or uh, hurtful towards Jacob, towards Yaakov. But what most people 
remember them as is they remember them as kind of like bitter enemies and Esau is somehow being a very vile kind of person and unworthy successor and most of that is not the plain text it's it's midrash it's uh it's interpretation and it's fairly well accepted that the reason for all those midrashim and interpretations are because people felt so uncomfortable with, well, why is Esau being treated in this way and being uh, and being neglected in this way and being punished in all these ways? If he didn't do anything bad, he must have done something to deserve it. And the comparison that these podcasts were making were that fan fiction often works in very similar ways. There are p- ways that people want to bring text more into sync with what they with how they experience life or uh, they're missing something in the text and they want to add it in. And so they add something to it. And that's a very interesting comparison. My, my, my immediate reaction to some of this is that there is still a very fundamental difference between trying to interpret something that you are assuming baseline is true or is meaningful or is divine versus something that an author has written and you know is, is very likely flawed or has mistakes or just hasn't been completely edited or, you know, all kinds of things yeah. like that. There's a fundamental difference. But I do agree that the that the approach of wanting to fix it has a lot of similarities. So, yeah, that was yeah, a really so interesting comparison. Just to add to that, like in this anti-Judaism book that I was talking to, which, again, mm-hmm. I link to. So he's a historian. He's a Jewish historian, but he was looking at the history of anti-Jewishness in culture and in religion and just in mainstream society right from I think Egyptian civilization Uh, I think that's where he began and he was talking about how like even the things the religious texts and this is true I think like I was making comparisons to Hindu religious texts that what is treated as canon because it was written like in religion it was written like a hundred or 150 years after the events, the historical events happened, it depends on what, like, who had control of canon, basically, like, who decided which interpretations are more valid than others. And in scholarship, like he was talking, of course, about Jewish scholarship, there are a lot of debates about that, like what And I'm, again, like, for me, it's all through secondhand experiences. It's all through people, like, even on these podcasts, like, the Imaginary Worlds episode where the rabbi spoke about canon in Judaism and even in Harry Potter and the sacred text. So for me, it's all through that experiences. But I thought that was really interesting as well. Like, which groups of people are considered to be more privileged than others and how that changes, like, 2,500 years after the events, which I find really interesting definitely feel like specifically i can't speak to other religions but in judaism you feel that very very strongly because so many of our texts are a edited or like very clearly edited like the entire the entire talmud which is the basis of of modern halacha uh, modern you know jewish law is all it's literally a summary of various versions of this rabbi ruled this way, this rabbi ruled the second way. Well, was it the same case? There's this one difference. Maybe there was a difference, and that's why they ruled differently. It's like these long and very highly, very clearly edited discussions of what the rulings were in a lot of different cases. And you can yeah. see how the framing of that, how how the person, you know, the, the 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 people who did the editing and who composed it, you know, the person who whose argument they bring last is generally the one considered to be correct. So it's the editor who's deciding 
what what the actual ruling is or should yeah. be. I think that's one of the interesting things is is I mean Judaism always seems to be a very argumentative <laughs> religion, <laughs> which is yeah. one of the things I really love about it. Like it it's yeah. it's very explicitly founded on yes we believe in in a truth but there are many of us and we believe in many different truths yeah. uh, or many different variations on the truths and that and that's like built in very very strongly from you know from the sacrifice of Isaac where god says okay you sacrifice him but but but, but no actually not really to you know Abraham arguing over whether over whether or not god should destroy the sinners in Sodom and on through you know on through the the halachic the halachic construction of the Talmud it's so baked in that religion happens through arguments and there are you know there's a wonderful also also a, a midrash uh, you know a, a, I guess you would call it a fable about uh, a rabbi who was arguing with another group of rabbis over what a certain ruling was and the rabbi said well if I'm correct then a voice should come out from the heavens and say I this rabbi I, he is correct and a voice came out from the heavens and said, yes, he is correct in this ruling. And the other rabbis say, yeah, but we don't determine halacha by voices coming out of the heavens. We we determine them by arguing. <laughs> so we disagree. So halacha is what we say. <laughs> and that's the kind of character that a religion or a community can have that makes it unique and different from, from other cultures. I'm sure that First of all, any other religion will have its own fundamental stories and own fundamental self-definitions of how they think and how the world works and how virtue is decided and how decisions are made. And even within a certain religion, you'll have many, many different views and different interpretations and mm -hmm. variations. Even if they have a common base, they will still have their own interpretations of how the world works and how religion is decided and what the faith should be. That's precisely the kind of nuance that I feel is so often absent and missing and neglected. Yeah. So in Harry Potter and the Secret Text, like a few of the episodes that we listened to, they spoke about that, like, you know, even mm -hmm. th just the idea of the sacred text and the difference between sacred and perfect, where perfect doesn't really leave any room for arguments and questions and debates. Like it is that you this is the one truth there isn't room for different truths like you were saying and hinduism like we were speaking about this on a previous podcast like i ignorant complete ignorant about all religions but i have friends who are even though they're non-religious they know more about it than me and one of my friends was talking about how even within hinduism depending on which part of the country in india as well as different south asian countries you go like ramayana and mahabharat those are our two sort of texts like like you know mythological sort of stories which is a basis of a lot of hindu religion and based on where you go the lens through which you view is different like you know the lens which characters are important are different like in some places it they even look at it from what is traditional Ravan that's like Ram and Ravan in the Ra Ramayana and Ravan is supposed to be the demon king and he's supposed to be like the villain as uh -huh. simplistic as that sounds but there are some parts of the country which or like even parts of South Asia that look at him as the mm -hmm. hero and like as the other coming and almost like taking over the culture and taking over the country basically so bit of like colonization before it was coloni colonization I don't know but don't know enough about it but that's what I find really interesting that which voices come to the fore 
is so culturally socially and even historically determined like now there are so many more scholars not just in Judaism but like in Christianity in Hinduism and like different parts of like different religions that are looking for these stories that were invisible and like you know belonging to these marginalized groups and trying to bring those to the fore as well which mm-hmm. i love and that's what i also love about fandom which is essentially doing the same thing like harry potter for example very white like few you know handful of you know just diversity for diversity points there's like people of color but there are people and fans who feel so strongly about this world that they read you know themselves into the story like for example hermione granger is black yes. like that was yes. that's a huge mm-hmm. part of fandom and harry yeah. potter is half south asian and like similarly going back to religion like where religious fans are reading themselves into seemingly non religious science fiction and fantasy texts i think to address like you know otherwise the way that religious characters are represented is so one dimensional that when you're not talking about religion you almost see yourself in it more like this we've spoken something about similar with disabled characters and with you know characters of different races as well so in a few of the comments of the post that we read i think they were looking at like with tolkien as well like lord of the rings and how Judaism fits into that and someone read Asterix and Obelix as a Jewish story which I found was really interesting yeah it was in the comments uh, of fantasy and the Jewish question the blog post that okay. so be- so uh they said that the story may be about french against romans but beneath the surface it's a classic the smart jew makes fun of the stupid gentile story with the small village <laughs> the protagonist live in is the classic jewish town which again like i don't know enough about judaism but i thought it was really interesting that a jewish fan would read it as such and superman as a jewish tale as well and of course like doctor who regenerations they saw in the faith and fantasy episode as the jewish concept of beginning again or lord of the rings as i think the jedi as sufi mystics and elves is you know like you're just reading yourself into the story where like even in harry potter and the cursed child being read as either jesus or muhammad or moses like i find that really exciting because i'm learning about religion also through those interpretations mm-hmm. yeah that was definitely a foundational uh text for me because it made me realize how much a story's structure has so many assumptions like just baked into it and how you know it's often said of, of of Jews that our that our most primordial story is they tried to kill us they failed let's eat is the kind of <laughs> constant repeating Jewish story the kind of recognition of how so many you know common adventure narratives or fantasy or science fiction narratives don't you know are are so completely alien to that you know they're so often like oh no there is a disruption to the natural order Whereas, you know, if you look at if you look at Jews through the ages, the natural order just isn't so good. Um, (laughs) And when you realize, you know, when you start recognizing those patterns, it makes you it makes you notice them a lot more. And it makes you realize that, you know, every culture and every community probably has (laughs) probably has their own patterns that you shouldn't just take for granted are the same as yours. And it makes you look for them a lot more and recognize a lot more when one of them keeps repeating. I think, you know, themes of persecution are very, very easy to identify with, are very easy for, for Jews to identify with because a lot of our stories are are, are really uh, there. I keep joking that as far as I'm concerned, uh, a lot of this was in the context of uh, an article called The Jewish Narnia, where a reviewer, I, f- I forget the name, 
was asking why are there no Jewish authors writing something as popular or as enduring as Narnia? And some of the answers being that, you know, that the story of, you know, the, the, the basic fundamental Jewish stories are very different than the adventure stories that we're used to seeing. And I said that the series of unfortunate events, which is about a couple of kids, <laughs> sorry, three kids who, who whose parents were killed and are running for their lives and they keep getting into horrible situations, you know, needing to navigate a morally gray field of what is actually the right thing to do. That feels to me like that that's a story that I identify with my texts and my culture. Um, I love I love that. I that's why this fandom is so like I've gotten a lot through fandom myself. But even now I'm constantly learning, especially with fan podcasts, because there's so much like people from backgrounds that aren't represented largely mm. in mainstream media and culture like they're inserting their own perspectives and their own experiences and I love it because it's just like this giant school for free I mean you do need like internet and stuff but like <laughs> otherwise it's free but um, despite the overall absence of religion in SFF there are a few instances where faith is represented sometimes like fictional faiths but mm-hmm. they do draw parallels to real world religion so I found the two ep- the Star Trek episodes that uh, we watched for this really interesting one was who watches the watchers in the next generation and I'm not like I'm not really very familiar with Star Trek even though my boyfriend is trying to get me into it he's a huge <laughs> the next generation and Picard fans so we watched the first season and then got distracted but yeah I found that one so interesting just because of like you know the question that it had about what counts as religion and what just counts as advanced science and like the like how you can mess up stuff like even but in like I don't know if it was I think it showed religion in a much more agnostic way than the other episode did ascension which in deep space nine in deep space nine in deep space nine which had faith as a much more normalized even though normal is a word that i'm very suspicious of but like you know as a much more normalized part of the like and i don't know the context of the world because i watched those Mm -hmm. episodes in isolation Mm -hmm. but whereas in the first episode religion seemed to be something that they were trying to distance themselves from exactly. in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, it Absolutely. was much more like a, just like a regular everyday part of their lives. Right. The episode, the episode of Next Gener- Generation, if I recall correctly, it's got them accidentally contacting a more primitive culture and the primitive mm. culture thinking of them in religious terms or, or as as gods. And it was so important for them to not, to not uh, create those superstitions or those false beliefs. Yeah. That's certainly an interesting conflict. I don't think there's any basis of morality where you want to be confused accidentally for a god. And it yeah. brings into it brings an interesting discussion of what is faith, what is worth believing in, what is a religion. But it does definitely have the underlying current of we don't want to encourage this. In Deep Space Nine, basically a character comes out of nowhere and is immediately kind of crowned a spiritual leader and he tries to bring the culture back to a to bring back a very spiritual culture to a previous state that they'd had with a caste system and with uh, older beliefs. And a lot of what the episode is about is how readily uh, this spiritual culture agrees to that and plays along with it, even though it even though it's devastating to them. Yeah. But what that episode does, which I feel is very, very unusual, is it has 
sympathy and understanding for the people who want this to work. It doesn't have us wanting it to work. It doesn't have us wanting the Bajorans to go back to a caste system. But it does show us why people might be willing to do absurd things because because they believe it <laughs> honestly there's no there's no like i don't think there's an argument more than that than that, more than, than that they do it because they believe it but they do it because of trust and i think that's a lot of what the episode is about because a lot of the conclusion is when 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 cisco when when, when this character goes away and cisco realizes that it's kind that this whole thing has been kind of to, to nudge him into doing better at his uh at his religious position, which he doesn't want. But one of the key points is that he asks Kira, who is a sympathetic but spiritual character, he asks her, if I told people to do that, they, you know, they would do all this for me? And Kira says, yes, because you're the emissary, because you have this religious role. And I think that speaks to the responsibility and ability that religion has to shape people's lives and communities because in good hands it can be i mean that's what religion i think in its best form is capable of being is a way for a community to come together and shape itself to be better and to be to help itself yeah and i found it really interesting that episode because first of all the caste system which is like it's fictional in this but hinduism has a huge problem with the caste system in exactly the way that the conservative leader was trying to get the people back to, which is that you'd only do the jobs that you were born to do. And then mm-hmm. immediately, as soon as like, I could find so many parallels, because in one of the scenes, there was like, I think someone was murdered, uh, because they were, they belonged to a lower caste. So they were like, uh, they, I think, took care of the dead bodies, they prepared them for burial. So they were immediately from that family, even though they didn't do that job anymore. But they switched so instantly to this idea of that, that uh, because they didn't show the due respect to a person of a higher caste, this person pushed them down the railing and the person died. And that's very similar to what happens in huge parts of India, even today, where some uh, castes are seen as lower and some castes are seen as dirty and you can't have interactions among castes and you are only allowed to do certain jobs and you're only allowed to inhabit certain parts of the village or the city or whatever but what i found interesting in this episode was that like yeah that but also it was almost like a thing between like the conservative understanding of this religion versus a more progressive understanding of this religion i guess spiritual not progressive a more spiritual understanding of this religion but even the conservative leader like Akoram, I think his name was, they didn't show him to be a bad guy. Like they didn't show him to be this power hungry, you know, person. Who, like he really believed in what he was doing, which of course that's dangerous in itself because you know a lot of religions where they do believe mm-hmm. in what they're doing and that leads to a lot of violence and conflict and war historically and even now. But in this case, he he just wanted to do good by his people and when he then like you know they go to the prophets and who appear in the bodies of the crew members and speak through them and when he realized that he had it wrong he was quite like yeah okay he didn't start a civil war or anything he was just like okay (laughs) that's cool i guess it's fine so you know i thought that was really interesting that it was like the tensions between a faith but not in a way that had a good guy and a bad guy it was just everyone believes that they're doing the right thing and some maybe 
mistaken and some may not and even that is so contextual like among yeah. certain fans they might have like thought that Akoram should have been the one who won you know like it, it depends on your own personal <laughs> politics and beliefs but yeah yeah I I, I... I like that episode because even you know even though it definitely leans very hard into the you know if I if I said earlier that a lot of portrayals of religion portray religious people as being cultish and uh, you know and blindly obedient I mean this this episode has a lot of that but it also pays a lot of attention to where that's coming from to the emotions that make people be willing to go along with something to you know, t- to how it's a position of trust a lot more than irrationality. And t- to be absolutely clear, that trust can be misplaced. Uh, yeah. the, the consequences can be horrendous. You know, <laughs> the the fact that people trust a leader and the fact that the leader is well intentioned does not mean that things will They're work not out all well. Wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel like the appreciation of this as something that a that a person can connect to. Uh, is what shifts it from being kind of an, uh, an exaggerated uh, portrayal to, to being something that, that's more realistic. Yeah, uh, there's more room to explore, like you said, the nuances, which is so missing in most religious portrayals. And even in real life, really, like in real life media, you tend religion tends to be in the news only at the extremes. And that's yeah. how I've spent a large part of my life understanding religion through that framework. Like, yeah. just because I've not studied religion, like I'm now more interested in reading about religion through like more like books and things and like podcasts, but just to understand, like not because I want to find a religion for myself, but I want to understand how religious people make sense of the world and I like I think that's a like a lot of similarities like we've spoken about in this episode with the way that I make sense with the world so it's it's really interesting to me just like that which is why I think a lot of people non-religious people are really skeptical of religion because that's the only you know sort of exposure that they've had and even in personal right. life like in the UK yeah the exposure that they have is always antagonistic almost yeah. always yeah, and like even in or like neutral. The, I mean, like you know, you you can have a religious person working with you, and they'll never offend, or they'll you know they'll always yeah. be kind of like there. But it's not that's not a positive. You're not privy to their own sp- spiritual world or to what connects them to their own spirituality, uh, unless you're very nosy or they're very open, uh, yeah. and somehow and and yet somehow not annoying. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and like I I remember when I moved to the UK so I stayed in Glasgow for a year and a half uh, when I was doing my masters and Scotland in general but Glasgow in particular has a lot of sectarian violence still like some like just between Protestants and Catholics and like when I was in Catholic school in India like it was a convent school so basically in India when I was growing up a convent school was for many people less about religion but we believe the nuns taught English the best like it was like uh, there in terms of like public education they were seen to be better than government schools which is why a lot of parents send them to send students to convent schools now of course you have a lot of international schools and things and that's there's like class hierarchies there but honestly I think I think you see that in a lot of places in a lot of ways I know like in Israel there are certainly a lot of places where the religious schools are seen to be better and I you know I think a lot of that is because a lot of religious people go to be teachers um or you know because the religious um 
because the religious uh, groups and the re- because the religious government parties are able to get more funding, or you know, there are a lot of reasons for <laughs> for an imbalance, but it definitely winds up as kind of okay the religious schools are better and therefore we might send our kids to religious schools even though we're not religious it was very much uh, a thing of colonization like it was still a very much a colonized mindset because oh nuns yeah christians they must know english better so you know (laughs) why don't we send us there but like my interaction then was like we had protestants and we had catholics but they were all lumped together in the same sort of thing like they used to go for religious services in one era and like all the non uh catholic and non-protestant people used to go in like other we had other classes like during the religious studies thing and so for me when i moved to the uk it was really like i was like oh wait you're fighting amongst yourselves i thought you were this like you know i thought you believed in the same things and then again anti-judaism i keep harking back to that book but it's because I learned so much it's quite a dense book so uh, I would recommend only it only if you have like a lot of commitment to reading it like to people <laughs> listening but it, it was very enlightening and he briefly like touched on it about the reformation and you know the violence that was there between like and I didn't know a lot of this like European history and I was like oh no wonder you guys seem to hate each other so much I see what's happening and now I understand why there's so much more of a conflict in the UK even though like to me it seems like you just want to find someone to hate and fight but yeah just like along lines of differences when you believe in the same God but Hinduism is the same and like other religions are the same and I definitely think I mean I think that that's one of the ways that I feel like it kind of brings home that religion is not merely the question of what God you believe in or what text you believe in so much of it is culture and geography like you know if I come from a city <laughs> whose dominant belief is x and somebody mm-hmm. else is you know from a city whose dominant belief is y then i yeah. might feel uncomfortable you know and and some of those i will attribute to religious reasons and some of those will be strongly connected to those religious reasons because those two cities might really have different ways of behaving and different values and different approaches but but it's all but it's also connected just you know religion and culture so it, they're they're yeah, hard like, to tease apart yeah like um india and pakistan right like because again colonization i blame the empire for everything <laughs> but we have like a huge like you know we're on the brink of war with each other and we have been at war with each other a lot after the partition which led to like tremendous violence as well but if I meet a Pakistani person here in the UK, we both have no enmity. Like, we're not, like, you know, we don't hate each other. And we're so culturally similar. Like, you know, this Desi South Asian culture, which in, like, we're both othered in similar ways in this country because of the color of our skin. But we also, like, recognize in each other, like, I've spoken in Hindi to, you know, and, like, you know, called people uncle and auntie in the same way that I would in India, even though they're from Pakistan. Whereas when I'm in India, like, the news media has such, like, terrible reports of Pakistan which I don't believe Mm -hmm. in anyway but that's the sort of you know thing that this Hindu Muslim conflict and Pakistan India enemies but like you're saying like if I come here it's both like I'm not religious so I guess it might be easier for me and I'm not patriotic either like I I love India but Mm -hmm. I'm not like my sense Mm -hmm. of self isn't tied to my country yeah so Mm -hmm. I'm like yeah I, I would be friends with 
you if you're from Pakistan or wherever. But we also share so many similarities. We watch the same movies. We like this. We like similar kind of food. We have similar, you know, cultural things that we share. So why wouldn't we be friends? We have more in common now. Yeah. And of course, like I've also grown up with a lot of Western media, so I have that with white English people and white Scottish people as well. But it's finding commonalities and finding things to connect over rather than differences is something that I think it can be used like that religion in like stories as well like just why is it always conflict and why is it not sometimes just compassion absolutely it also works the other way around like if you have a society that seems homogenous like that you know everybody believes the same things then very often you'll see like a schism or you know you'll see a separation which will play out along religious lines as well. It starts from small things, like you say that, you know, for every two Jews, you have three synagogues. And you you literally see this in actual synagogues. I live in a city with a lot of religious people, but always there are more and more people trying to open up new synagogues and small little synagogues because they don't want to pray the way that this place does it. <laughs> and none, and, and, you know, and the, the city can have 50 synagogues and still they will not have a single place that's close enough to what they want. <laughs> you know, part of it is because religion is such a big part of religious life. So that's one of the places where the fault lines will appear. And part of it is because religion reflects the rest of life. And so if you have mm. people that you're uncomfortable with, you won't want to go to the same uh, to the same place of prayer that they do. So, yeah. Which is a pity. I wish, <laughs> I wish it was. Like, I mean, I do understand why it happens. But, I, like, you know, I like this idea. I read an article, like a few articles, I think, and like also watched Queer Eye, where they're talking about churches. And because in the U.S., Christianity is the sort of, framework of that um, country Uh, it was about churches but where pastors there was I think a gay pastor in one of the newest episodes Mm -hmm. of Queer Eye and he grew up in a very homophobic faith tradition Mm -hmm. like his church that he went to Mm -hmm. but now he's trying to make it more inclusive to Mm -hmm. you know people who are like him to kids who are like Mm -hmm. like you know uh, come from different sexualities and gender identities and there's a Mm -hmm. growing group of people who are trying and even in the UK for that matter I've seen a lot of secular uh, I don't I think humanist yeah I think that's what they call yeah. it like humanist churches so it's uh, you invite people from all tradition all faiths or no faith and just come together to just share a meal and you know talk to each other like I wish that there were more of that like it's fine to also have things that you believe in and like a separate pocket of that but then that can get dangerous right like that can yes. If you only have that Uh, and no interaction with people who believe differently from you, like, I think that's also important. I've been on the edges of different things like that. And it's, it's a very interesting dynamic because when you have like an interfaith initiative of any kind, the first people that you will actually come into contact is other people who want an interfaith initiative, which is a very particular group. It's not the same as actually coming into contact with, you know, with the full variety, actually coming into contact with the people who are most like you, but not necessarily in the same faith. Which, which, I mean, can be interesting. It, it can be, it can be fantastic, and it can be very, very valuable. But it's, it's a thing of its own. No, I agree. It's just, I think I'm a very optimistic, idealistic, sometimes very naively so person. You know, I like this idea of 
learning from other people in real life like you know yeah. just having that physical community rather than just like i love the mm-hmm. podcast i love reading about things but it's also nice like how you and i were talking like you know it's just yeah. we come from such different backgrounds but just talking about things that we believe in essentially like i wish that was more a normalized part of society and you're right like with interfaith things it's a very self-selecting audience like you know if you believe in it you'll come if you don't you won't so it's difficult to reach across that boundary but yeah you know maybe someday maybe that's the kind of stories that i need to write because i write children's books but with no mm-hmm. religious mm-hmm. anything because i'm like you said it's a blind spot because i'm not religion so like trying to understand that would be like another like i need to research things and then write about it but yeah it's just it's interesting i guess i just kind of want to sum up to say that i think that religion is a very very wide subject a very a subject that touches on so many different aspects of life and it's one that is often very difficult to understand from the outside and it's hard for me to uh <laughs> it's hard for me to criticize those who, who don't understand it very well or who don't sympathize with it very much and it's also a topic that has so many issues and problems and difficulties because it does very often and not in all versions of faith but in many versions of faith have real clashes with uh, humanism and pluralism and respect for other identities and those can all be so challenging to grapple with to me personally that's exactly why i want to see them grappled with I feel like we need the voices who want to grapple with them, who want to figure out how we can have religion and pluralism at the same time, how we can acknowledge both the people of particular faiths and also the people outside them and respect them both. I I feel like the onus of this should (laughs) fall first and foremost on pluralistic religious people, Um, although... (laughs) I feel very often like that is a small and isolated and beleaguered community. (laughs) I love it. That's why I enjoyed our conversation so much. Just even before I think we spoke, I knew I would enjoy our conversation just because of the (laughs) kind of texts that you recommended and the kind of points that you brought up. Because just like I said, I believe in a more pluralistic, humanistic version of religion which has room for all religions and no religions as well and yeah that's something that i got a lot of out of our conversation today so thank you so much for being a part Uh, of this project and for just expanding my mind i know i keep saying this but it's true (laughs) with like everybody that i speak to especially with people from different backgrounds that i learned so much just through conversation and i yeah i really appreciate everybody and you coming on to this podcast thank you very much I'm I'm so glad. This has been really wonderful for me, too. I mean, this has been, I guess, kind of in the back of my mind for months since we, you know, since you first put out the call. And I was like, well, what do I want to talk about? What what do I think about this? And this has helped me articulate certain points quite a bit and also helped me figure out what else I want to articulate and can't quite yet. Yeah. Um, And this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. You've been listening to our episode on religious representations in science fiction and fantasy. Thank you so much, Zee, for challenging and expanding my beliefs about religion and for offering such thoughtful conversation. And thanks as always to Jack for discovering a dinosaur wonderland and also for the editing.
I'd love to hear from you and talk to you. So any feedback, comments or critiques are very welcome. Get in touch with me on social media, leave a comment on my blog or email me at edps@leads.ac.uk. At if you'd like to follow the podcast or the PhD project, visit my website marginallyfanish.org. Here you'll find the podcast episodes, transcripts, episode resources and links and my research blog. You can also receive updates on Facebook or Instagram at marginallyfanish or on Twitter where I'm at marginalfanish. I share episode resources on social media so you can find a bunch of excellent fan podcasts and essays to look up. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with anyone you think will enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. Tune in again next time for all things fanish and intersectional.